Okay, you guys stay here and feed the rabbits. I'm gonna find a way through this maze. No! I am trapped inside of an egg. Come on! No, leave me alone. I don't want a hat. I don't go! No, I do. Ow! I said go! Why are you being so mean? Sorry, sorry about that whole egg thing. That's okay. I'm sorry I made you hatch. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast for two Trek fans. Step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge... This is Tyler Orton, finding himself in yet another ancient mask situation. And we're here this week to talk about the latest episode of Lower Decks, episode 4 of season 3, Room for Growth. This is the one, of course, in which uh, half the... Uh, crew go to a spa or i guess the engineering folks plus freeman um freeman decides to go along with uh at, at the spa and then uh the other core characters uh they go searching for shortcuts to get ahead in a lottery for new quarters um cam this is an episode i found perfectly inoffensive it didn't make me mad but um it left me with uh feelings of vanilla all around me in, in that um I, I, I wasn't engaged in the story, I, I didn't care about the stakes involved, and it really didn't really make me laugh. I mean, there's some funny lines that I was like, oh, that's good, you know, like, um, a, a, a manicure is like a petty for your hand toes. I, I thought that was a great <laughs> line, but other than that, I, I think this is, for me at least, uh, far and away the weakest episode of what's turned out to be a pretty strong start to season three. This one for me kind of falls yeah right in like that middle ground of lower decks where like i didn't think this was a bad episode but like it didn't feel as inspired as some others what i did like about it was more of the character building stuff in terms of you know just having three of our core characters to spend a prolonged period of time together joking around and talking and kind of just building up that dynamic through an episode so like it's hard to really put me off of an episode if it's three characters i like just hanging out and talking to each other it's something i pray that like a star trek discovery would do would be like just take a breath and let your characters bounce off one another so in that regard all the stuff to do with you know boimler mariner and tendy mostly worked for me um the delta shift stuff was good concept but i feel like we don't i don't know it feels like a little underdeveloped this whole like rivalry with delta shift i think you could do more with that that was maybe a little more interesting but like um the Freeman stuff with the the spa is a fun idea, but like other than observing the obsessive quality of Starfleet engineers, which, you know, we, we've seen it in Geordi, uh, Scotty to a degree, and many, many Star Trek engineers, it didn't really have a lot of places to go beyond that. It was very one note. Yeah, and I mean, the joke, I guess, is ultimately that you know, Captain Freeman is the one who's truly stressed, but okay, like, that's, that's fine, but, like, it didn't, um, 
when it had a very you quick laugh in your ass off. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's just it. Like this is a comedy yeah. show, and I I was not laughing my ass off uh, throughout this episode. That, that that's kind of yeah. I, I know what you're saying. The character stuff, it maybe works, but it also kind of seems a little um lacking teeth. Like uh you know th- th- this just seemed kind of like a soft episode overall. Didn't it seem like a perfect episode four? <laughs> yeah no i know what you're you saying come out yeah. of the gate yeah you come out of the gate strong you got your like you know three episodes that have some if if they're not like great episodes they still have memorable moments and then you throw in kind of a softball around that number four slot and then you know you kind of want to have something strong around your midpoint and then you want to end strong so i don't know that i have the highest of hopes for like episode seven or eight either so is this kind of like uh the resurrection of this season. You remember when uh, you're coming off the Dominion War, then you follow up with Worf and Jedzia getting married, and the episode right after that is the return of uh, Burial via the Mirror Universe? Mm, yes, that is a good comparison. Also, in the Dominion War arc, or the Invasion arc, which one is uh, Sons and Daughters? Is that, like, the fourth one? That may have been number three. I'm, I'm trying to think of okay. it in my head. It's... uh. It, we, it kicks off the season finale was uh, A Time to Stand, and then, uh, oh, I'm sorry, it was Call to Arms, then A Time to Stand, and then was it Rocks and Shoals? Or, Cam- you know, there's a very, very easy way to look this up. <laughs> if only yeah. I actually had my uh, smartphone with me. Remarkably, I don't. Um, Cam, I'm going to let you vamp for a while. <laughs> Well, I go look up the episode order because, or, or why don't you? Why don't you vamp while I? Okay, <laughs> well, fair enough. Yeah, so listeners, I'll, I'll 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 go into a little bit more of my my thoughts here. A to address what Cam said, if this is on Star Trek Discovery, uh, well, we'd actually if it was a Star Trek Discovery crossover on Lower Decks, you'd actually be seeing um, Boimler, Mariner, and Tendi uh, crying the entire time that they're uh, going through the uh, the their little shortcuts there. Um, but yeah, look, I, 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 the other thing I was very fearful of, very fearful of, is when they met up with the Delta Shift, and for the what I thought was going to be the second episode in a row, it was going to, it, we we're going to have to endure, you know, all these lower deckers coming around on each other, understanding their differences, and they're going to be best friends in the end. That's why I kind of, I, I was satisfied by the conclusion in which they just revealed that the Delta Shift was like, yeah. Why don't we just put four beds in one uh, room and uh, we'll, we'll party together every night? I think that is actually pretty good there. But uh, Cam, tell me the episode order. I, I feel like I'm getting old and that like I'm not top of the game right now if I can't recite them um, head to toe right right at this moment. Yes. Yeah, so the Dominion Invasion arc kicked off with Call to Arms at the end of season five. And then in season six, it started off with a time to stand. We went to Rocks and Shoals, another great episode. And the fourth chapter in that arc was Sons and Daughters. <laughs> was it now? Okay. And uh, what was number? What was number three then? Uh, it was behind the. Oh, number three. Um. Well, like. Uh. So in the season, in season six, Ro- Sons and Daughters is number three. But in the uh, oh, Dominion Invasion okay, okay, arc, okay. it falls at number four because Sons gotcha, and Daughters gotcha. is followed by Behind the Lines and Favor the Bold. I gotcha. Okay, cool. Well, at least I got the first three right. I'm not totally off my game. So, um, boom, boom, take that. Uh, <laughs> so, Cam, um, what do you think of uh, Caveman Ransom and Churro Livia, uh, his his uh, churro wife? Is that going to be your cosplay um, <laughs> at the Seattle convention? 
I really felt like that was a funny thing set up that we needed that like home run visual gag in the episode. And because I honestly, I don't really know what they're talking about. <laughs> it's like I can come up with something in my mind, but like I do think there would be a funny way to pre- present that visually that you could really have something a lot funnier than just Ransom at the end going up to, a, you know, a replicator and saying a bag of, ch- un, you know, churros in an un- unmarked bag. Well, he replenishes them. That, that's what they're showing. You know, okay, I'm going to just uh, make sure uh, Churro Olivia doesn't uh, dry out, you know? That's true. Do you think we're going to have a reveal of Churro Olivia at some point? Never. Never. Yeah. Wasn't there something that we just assumed they would have revealed, you know, maybe uh, season one or two, and they just never got around to it? Maybe, actually, maybe it was the uh, whole discussion of uh, Jax's death, or Shax's death, and they mm. kind of addressed that here, in which uh, he was telling Dr. Tana... Uh, I died and we never even talked about it. Um, I thought that was actually quite interesting. You know, they, they are kind of acknowledging it a little on the periphery. I think they made a reference to Shax's death uh, earlier on this season too. So I don't know. I don't like, I, I, I hope we get something a lot more satisfying than um, Rutherford being told like, oh, it's a secret. Do you really want to find out? And then it, it happens off camera. Like that didn't really satisfy me last season. Yeah. I mean, I like that they were teasing that with him bringing up the death to to uh, to Anna, and then her also mentioning her, how she lost her tail on the Algonquin, and then we never got a uh, payoff to that as well. It, I thought that was, pro- I think for me, the highlight of the episode was the uh, the long goodbye holodeck sequence, or I guess them just like robbing banks like Bonnie and Clyde. I thought that played out very funny, and honestly spoke probably closer to the reality of how a holodeck would be used than what Star Trek frequently does. Well, I I did like the, just the visual gag of, uh, you know, computer freeze program and the bullet stopping right in front of uh, Mm. Boimler's head, him moving it, and then it actually being hot. Um, What if that bullet actually touched his head? Were the safeties off in this situation? She took them off. Yeah, Ta'ana said safeties off. Oh, okay. I missed that there. So uh, that's a little freaky then. Uh-huh, that's a that's, close call, Boimler. That's right. That's how Tana and Shaq's play apparently is <laughs> like a crime riddled like uh, sex fantasy with safeties off. Let's see. Okay. Safeties off should be like the name of my uh, Star Trek punk rock band. <laughs> so like I, I really thought that was a fun little character moment for those two because there's been a, several gags now about the Shaq's-Tana relationship. and. It really works for me. Like, I genuinely think it's funny. And it is continuing in a way where it's built on humor. But I kind of like seeing those two together. Um, Was it too soon for a Masks reference? You know, it's only been haunting us for about 30 years at this point. But um, I I, I do appreciate that they kind of address the uh, what comes next after this ancient civilization uh, turns your corridors into viaducts and the whatnot, you know, I was like, okay, you know, cause I, I did kind of wonder, you know, like, like was it just that easy for uh, the enterprise D when we saw that episode back in like 94? Well, exactly. After that episode, there's a lot of cleanup involved that uh, I thought was a pretty funny gag. I, I think like in terms of like the show making references, I thought this one worked because they found a way to convey it in a way that even if you hadn't seen the episode masks um, would still compute. Um, but I thought like just having sat through masks, I think <laughs> once obviously when I went through the show just on my own, and I think we, I've watched it twice for this podcast. It is one of the most torturous Star Trek TNG episodes to rewatch. And 
I very much appreciated that not only were they getting a jab in at that episode, but they committed to it. When like Freeman was like levitating and like <laughs> going down the <laughs> corridor with the mask, that made me laugh a lot. A lot, and also the reference to like Manuki, like all of that sort of stuff. I thought, you know what? At least they are owning masks. Like they're not kind of ignoring it. They're definitely. <laughs> seemingly building on the mythology of masks and hopefully they do more because I like the idea of taking things that are ridiculous in Star Trek and expanding on them a la, you know, um, Outrageous Okona. <laughs> yeah, Kevin, there's literally like a photo of me from the 2019 Las Vegas convention in which there were two cosplayers in masks cosplay and I was like, I need to get a picture of uh, myself with them. I have to. That was my one of my proudest uh, requests for a cosplay photo there. Well, what I like about Masks is that that episode committed. Like, there are boring, bad episodes of TNG, or any Star Trek show, quite frankly, where, you know, maybe it's like a bottle episode. Maybe it's something where they just kind of had a half-finished idea, you know, bumpy-headed alien of the week kind of stuff. Masks, I mean, the set design, the uh, performance that Brent Spiner is giving, that is an episode that it goes wrong, but spectacularly so. If I recall correctly, uh, I think Ronald D. Moore, uh, <laughs> he, was, he was talking about the writer of this, and I believe it was written by Joe Minoski, and <laughs> he was writing it as kind of a freelancer. I think he was up in the Swiss Alps, and uh, Ron Moore was like, I don't know what he was smoking up there, but I guess it was some really strong stuff. And so that's how we get an episode like Masks. Yes, yes. I mean, that episode is a hallucination. And speaking well, of there's hallucinations. There's no rules to this. No, like, there's no rules whatsoever. Yeah. But I thought this episode had a pretty funny hallucination sequence as well, where you had uh, Mariner and Boimler just like tripping in the hydroponics bay. I thought like the visual comedy they got out of that really worked for me. I thought it was very funny. Is that because it reminded you of the time that you were tripping in uh, Vegas after <laughs> one of our friends? <laughs> I, I'm sure the listeners have heard this story before, but like uh, we're at the Las Vegas convention and one of our friends went off to go get like edibles and uh she comes back like hours later with another friend and um <laughs> i'm already upstairs uh, asleep at like 1 30 in the morning and yeah. i get these panicked <laughs> text messages saying like cam's just done weed i'm like what <laughs> it's like yeah he's taking edibles and he's freaking out i'm like <laughs> uh what okay so i go downstairs and um i find out that uh, our friend um she had said like oh yeah it's like uh it's like black cherry astronaut candy and like i i don't even taste it i'm not even feeling it's good it's not even good and you're like oh i'll, I'll take some you not realizing that it was an edible you just thought it was candy yeah and so um listeners yeah cam accidentally um ingested um cannabis uh while in las vegas and i got to share a room with him that evening like you're freaking out <laughs> like you're holding like your phone's flashlight to the wall like clinging to the wall i think you're searching for the bathroom at like three in the morning <laughs> it, it was pretty incredible people he had to be there yes so what had happened was yeah she uh, well, she basically said to me that like this candy tastes terrible and i said really what is it and cherry and i said oh let me try some ate it and then realized what it was and my response was actually that i thought it was astronaut candy because it was in a foil bag and there was oh. a nasa stand at the convention and i thought that she had a <laughs> bag of like nasa candy the way you get like nasa ice cream or something yeah and yeah. like i remember our friend was just like that's not a thing <laughs> like <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, uh, yeah. that was not a pleasant night. Um, that was an awful night, quite frankly. And yes, I I got up to go to the washroom in the night, and I got lost um, between the bathroom and the closet, and I just kept winding back up at the closet over and over again. Well, you were knocked out. I think you're gone for like seventy five percent of the next day. Like, mm-hmm. uh, like, yeah. And our our friend, uh, she took a couple of them because it wasn't really having any effects on her immediately. Um, she, we didn't see her for two days. She was in her room for like two days, just totally knocked out by it. Yes. And I am someone who lives a very straight edge life in that regard. I've never really drank alcohol or done anything like that. So, uh, it hit me pretty hard. There you go. (laughs) So, um, I don't know, Cam, any final thoughts on this episode before we kind of dive into some other, um, topics, uh, this week? Yeah. I mean, my final thought was really that like, as much kind of, you know, amusing fun there was in this episode and little bits that I enjoyed, it's an episode that kind of frustrating because you want to have more to talk about. You know, you want to, I'm not asking for character cameos or anything like that. You just hope on a storytelling level, it'll deliver a little more than just a mild chuckle. And that's kind of what this episode was. Um, I I did write one thing down though. This was the second case we've had of the Adosians, which is the alien species, you know, that Eric's was a member of. Um, in the original animated show. And we, uh, when we were attending that uh, Star Trek, um, um, what was it called? The vault um, thing that they are, archives, the, right? The Roddenberry archives. And just for those that don't recall, the Andosians, they're the uh, ones with like the third arm, you know, kind of bursting out of their sternum. I think we saw mm-hmm. the first one in the farm in season one. Does that ring a bell, Cam? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so when we were seeing the Roddenberry archives and they were doing these, you know, um, CG replicas of the Cage Enterprise, at one point they showed us a CG, you know, essential live action creation, whatever you want. to. The, the line between live action and, C- and like animation now is so blurred, but nonetheless, of bringing essentially an adosian to life. Do you think we're getting closer and closer to having an actual adosian pop up on a show like you know, strange new worlds or discovery or something. So, okay. I, 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 if, if the answer is yes, please like do it with some sort of practical effects or a Mm -hmm. very, very convincing combination of CG and practical in which it's hard to tell what it is. And we kind of got that with, um, I think were they called the shepherd, you know, or the shepherds, in like I think it was like episode two of Strange New Worlds, uh, where it was kind of that comet that was uh, floating by, and they had uh, they go on screen and you c- couldn't really tell if the alien was like from puppeteering or for C- from CG, and then you found out uh, I think the behind the scenes folks said that it was actually a combination of the both, and I think that's kind of the way to go. I would like to see you know an Andosian, you know an actor put up in makeup, and then a, just a mix of puppetry with the arm, but also if you need to kind of like do points of articulation, then maybe you can kind of, um, you know, uh, accentuate that with some sort of CG. You know, maybe, maybe the fingers need to be CG or something like that. Or, yeah, or, yeah, exactly, like that, maybe the third arm or something, or you've got to, like, essentially CG out part of the, the face or something like that. Like, you have almost like, oh, what am I thinking of? Um, where it was like, oh, I'm thinking of, like, um, the C-3PO, um, the unfinished C-3PO in The Phantom Menace, where it was essentially a puppeteered, um, device with like an you know someone behind it in a green screen suit that they CG'd out like something like that that they could then yeah. accentuate like I think something like that could be really cool or Elf <laughs> Willie 
Yeah, exactly. Just like a hand I puppet. I need to get back up. to Milmac. <laughs> it's just like the Adosian head popping up behind like a couch or something like that. Yeah. That would be amazing. But like, it's, I've always wanted to see, and I've talked about this, where I've wanted to see some of these animated series aliens pop up. And we, you know, had a Cation. I think it might have been a Cation. I don't know. The Cat Lady in Star Trek V. That's the closest we've gotten to an actual Cation. But the Edosians always felt a little out of reach. Like, I did not want to see the Species 8472 equivalent of one pop up on, like, Enterprise or something, where it's just full-blown CG and looks like a cartoon. But I think we are at a point where we can start to realize some of these more, you know, fantastical um, animated series characters. What, what do you think the potential of, I don't know, Species 8472 returning in some sort of live action form at some point? Like, I, I would hope that they, the rendering would be a little bit better nowadays, but we often talk about how um, the, 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 renderings of cg are, are kind of more animation in style versus like photorealistic in style from the live back the three live action series um i i don't know like i i would like to see them reimagined but i i, I want to see it like you know, some like badass puppeteering slash cg because I, I think that puppeteering might be prohibitive prohibitively expensive yeah. for 8472 although can we've seen like fans at conventions do 8472 like uh cosplay it yeah. looks pretty damn good yeah yeah i i think the thing about 8472 is they're too notable by name and by visual to leave off the table forever yeah um i you know i mean them getting kind of written out of voyager in that you know kind of clunky um starfleet <laughs> academy like episode or whatever in the flesh uh like that was <sighs> It, it was clear that 8472 were very expensive and they didn't want to continue to, you know, kind of milk them the way they would say the Borg or something like that on Voyager. I get it. Um, I honestly think the best chance of an 8472 reemergence, and this isn't to say it's the only one, but I could see this happening on Prodigy. I think Prodigy, because yeah. it's an animated show and you've it got the Janeway Gene factor. Yeah. 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 Um, and that ship can kind of zip all over the place. They're in fluidic space. I think there's ways to bring them in because I just, I, I'm struggling to imagine 8472 popping up on like Discovery, Picard season three, uh, uh, <laughs> Strange New Worlds seems unlikely. Yeah. I would say like Discovery, you might get like a mention. There might be some name mention at some point, but I don't think they're going to pop up on screen. I do think there's a very good chance. I'm actually shocked it hasn't happened already, but I do think there's a very good chance they pop up, even if it's just briefly as a joke, even on Lower Decks. Yeah, I could see that. Um, speaking of Prodigy, though, like one thing, it, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but like it seems as if like Lower Decks, there always has to be kind of a, a lesson at the end, you know, kind of like Full House did that. Um, mm -hmm. I don't really recall that being the case so much in Prodigy, because it's more like it, it's clear what the themes of the episode are, and they don't need to, like, make the music swell and hit you in the head with a hammer about, like, what the lesson is of the episode, whereas that's one of my big complaints with Lower Decks, you know? It, it, or am I just kind of, uh, like, romanticizing the, uh, the, <laughs> those 10 episodes of Prodigy that we got, you know, it being like a, a, a kid's show uh, all, all the way too. I, hmm. I like though, the, the one thing is like an episode like this one, I liked how they set up the whole like getting along with your fellow crew members thing with the Delta ship and then completely undercut that. 
and that the joke became that like they got duped and then also that they weren't bright enough to figure out that you could just put the four you know beds in the one room so I, I like that aspect of it. I, I felt a little more of that kind of lesson thing last week yep. with the, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the ship that was just envious of them. But do you recall, th- does Prodigy do those kinds of lessons? Not as on the nose. And I wonder if that's yeah. also because it's a little more serialized. So. I don't know. I, I it's just know. like, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 this is not the first time Lower Decks has. Uh, maybe I'm speaking more about last week's episode, but it's happening through seasons one and two as well. I'm just kind of like, okay, you know, like, uh, ain't that special? You know, it's just like, you know, whatever. So a uh, little bit of a critique there. But um, Cam, uh, why don't we, we kind of touched on this a couple of weeks ago when we're doing our um, convention uh, episode in, in which we recounted our, our memories from the Star Trek Las Vegas convention back in August in which uh, news broke that uh, Matt Shackman, the director attached to the next Star Trek film with the 2009 cast um, that he would be t- departing. Um, this was not official news, but this was uh, all reported by uh, uh, you know very legitimate sources. And, and then at the D23, the big Disney conference uh it, it was confirmed as the rumors had stated that uh, shotgun was moving over to the uh fantastic four franchise to direct their uh yet another reboot there um i don't want people to walk away with the impression that uh marvel scooped him up from star trek and that's why star trek's not moving forward i think he jumped over to Fantastic Four because the Star Trek movie is not moving anywhere. We just really haven't heard much about any sort of movement with that show. We also know that there's been a lot of changes uh, with regards to um, who's running things at Paramount and kind of their uh, raison d'etre as a uh, uh, both a uh, large Hollywood uh, entertainment group as well as just the streaming service. I just think we might be in stasis mode yet again for the next Star Trek film. It's so strange to me. Because you just look at how every, you know, owner of a property wants to get it across multiple platforms, whether it's, you know, TV, film, like that's just what you do now. You know, I saw today they announced, you know, the Blade Runner um, 2099 TV show that Ridley Scott is going to be producing. It's like if you have a property that can be lucrative, you want to make the most of it. Um, And the fact that like... I don't I don't expect necessarily a Star Trek movie every two years. They've got a lot of stuff going on on TV. But the fact that it has been now six years since there's been a Star Trek film and they have fumbled at the ball this many times is shocking. Because, like, yeah, movies fall apart. It happens. You know, there was a Matthew McConaughey film that has been shut down just like this week. You know, that's not uncommon. But the fact that, like, you have a major franchise... And there's been this many at-bats, this many close-tos, this many scripts rumored, this many people hired to come up with new takes on a Star Trek movie, and none of them have gone anywhere is, frankly, astonishing. This is not something that is very common. Yeah, and so I was, like, absolutely convinced uh, for quite some time that, yes, a uh, a, a fourth Kelvinverse movie was all but guaranteed. And this goes back, you know, uh, quite a number of years and when news broke that they were going to yes do a fourth Calvinverse movie uh the, the i believe they wanted it out by december 2023 um they referred to the uh 
research, like the market research they had done. And what Paramount had determined was that uh, this was the most marketable cast you could collect. It, you know, it, way better uh, kind of traction than you could get than doing like a brand new Star Trek story based on new characters or something like that. I just, I, I, we're at that point there. I, I'm not convinced we'll see a Kelvinverse movie or, or anything like that. I, I just, I think it might be too hard to just kind of land these actors, um, get their schedules aligned once again. It, it might be a bit of a weird sort of thing moving forward. I think we just, we might have to get used to Star Trek Beyond being kind of the last adventure. I hope I'm wrong. I've been convinced I've, I, I, I was convinced that there would be another Kelvinverse movie for a lot of years. Now, this is the first time I've actually truly been wavery. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to have a lot of faith. At this point, especially like yeah. so much investment is going on with, um, you know, the TV world of what they want to do there and all the shows they want to, you know, l probably launch in the future. Um, we have the New York Comic Con coming at the start of October. And, you know, they've been hyping that there's going to be like a TNG cast reunion. I'm sure we're going to have big news out of that, you know, convention. I have zero faith of any sort of Star Trek movie news coming out. And that's the sort of thing that, like, you know, Star Trek Day, you're like, will we hear anything? Nope. I think, like, what we're going to hear at most is that a director has been attached to it. But, like, at this point, how far are we going to continue on with whatever Shackman was working on versus, like, bringing someone else on? And then they kind of want to, you know, alter it to, you know, suit what they would like to do. I have no idea. Are they just looking for a gun for hire to take over what they already have? There's no clear sense coming from Paramount that, like, they have something. Like, they have something they're legit excited about, but they must have had at least a kernel of something, right? Well, just the fact that Shackman's left now tells me that there's just been no movement on that, which tells yeah. me that I, I don't think you're going to get a gun for hire just to kind of uh, see w what vision Shackman had and see it through, you know, maybe with uh, his or her own sort of little twists on it. I, I think we're starting from scratch yet again. And that, that's just, the, the fact is we've got like, what, like five different scripts in the can at this point and it, like just no movement. I don't know. I Cam, bring, bring Tarantino in. This will be, uh, this will be his 10th and final film. Uh, we got the script ready. Uh, I, I, I'm sure I've just solved all of Paramount's problems right there. And it's notable, too, that uh, Fantastic Four was going to be directed by John Watts, who did the, uh, you know, the three more most recent Spider-Man films. And he ended up bailing to go do um, something in the Star Wars universe, this new Star Wars TV show. And so, like, it wasn't even like this was, you know, this Fantastic Four was like, you know, built up as a Matt Shackman kind of directorial effort. It's like he hopped over to that, I think, largely due to his relationship with Marvel over WandaVision. He obviously had a you know good time working for them and hopefully feels like he can do something creative with Fantastic Four, a property that has been done dirty <laughs> multiple times now. Uh, so I think there's potential to that film, but it's just like, I think if this had been like a, I agree with what you said, like if, Star Trek had been moving along in a way that he felt was encouraging, and obviously he'd been on board that for a little while and would have been involved in helping develop something. I think he would have stayed if this was going to happen. The fact that, like, he was willing to jump over and do a Fantastic Four film that, you know, he didn't initially have a hand in developing, I think it just speaks to, like, how confused Paramount is as to whether to even pull the trigger. I wonder how much of it is really just market research tells them 
that this is the crew that people want to see. But when it comes to actually signing off on checks, yeah. they suddenly yeah. get a little more nervous. <laughs> that, well, that was definitely a case uh, in the immediate uh, outset of the release of uh, Star Trek Beyond. In which they had a script ready to go. You're going to bring back uh, Chris Hemsworth as George Kirk, uh, some sort of tra- time travel movie. JJ on the red carpet was saying it's the best script he's ever seen. Uh, <laughs> I guess he didn't like the script for Star Trek Beyond, but um, and then uh, Paramount simply did not want to pay uh, what was in Chris Pine's contract. And flash forward six years later, and this film franchise uh, continues to languish, which is just. The fact is, the first one came out 13 years ago, and so we, we've been getting them at a rate of like like four a year. Um, that's that's terrible. Think about four, like four, uh, four a year or four a decade. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, I'm, I'm <laughs> I, I I meant to say one every four years. You know, right, right. And and so think about you know between 79 and 91, we got six movies. You know, like. Like just just the big gap between that, I I cannot wrap my head around it. It's interesting that um for all of the fact there's always kind of this uh you know competition between fans and whatever that like Star Trek is in a similar place as Star Wars right now, where they are just pumping out television content, but seem to be operating almost from a place of fear when it comes to their movies, where we've seen multiple Star Wars movies you know, announced, and then you never hear anything about them ever again. Um, You know, the Ryan Johnson trilogy, the Patty Jenkins Rogue One film, or not Rogue One, a Rogue Squadron film. Um, You know, this has happened multiple times. We'll see what happens with the Taika Waititi Star Wars film that's been quietly, quietly moving along, I guess. Um, But it seems like they're in the same situation of, like, they have these properties that people love, but they're, like, really scared to, like, actually pull the trigger on a movie. I maybe I'm mixing things up, but didn't we we hear like a week or two ago that Ryan Johnson he's like yeah I'm still working on this like Star Wars film like um yeah it's like okay well it's interesting that's the first we've heard about it in you know uh, I don't know three years perhaps it doesn't feel like the Star Wars world like they just like cut loose their projects it feels like they just kind of like quietly. <laughs> Keep them on a back burner until everyone just forgets about them. Yeah, yeah, kind of like Section Thirty One, <laughs> classic like Section Thirty One. The only thing that like the Star Wars uh, franchise really commits to is firing directors like very shortly before a movie starts shooting, or sometimes halfway or, through. Or, yeah, halfway through, <laughs> with regards to what happened with uh, Rogue One, and maybe that's a good segue for our uh, our our next topic here, Cam. Um, Kind of uh, talking about uh, the new Star Wars series Andor, which is a prequel to Rogue One, uh, featuring one Cassian Andor with uh, Diego Luna reprising uh, the main titular character there. Um, uh, This one uh, has a pedigree of one Tony Gilroy, uh, one of my favorite writer-directors, you know, just uh, Michael Clayton. One of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, he was behind that, and he pretty much came in um, halfway through. Uh, took over from uh, Gareth Edwards, the original director of Rogue One, and the and the credited director of Rogue One, and he turned what was uh, supposedly kind of a mess of a movie into something uh, watchable. And uh, some say that what uh, are their favorites? Uh, new era uh, Star Wars films as well. So. Um, I am anticipating this one. It's going, Cam, the scheduling for this is actually perfect for us. It's going to air on Wednesdays. 
So um, we can easily do the like reviews every week uh, after we do our Star Trek uh, Lower Deck stuff as well. Uh, Twelve episodes, which uh, that that is a a, a significant library. Uh, I, I think only uh, Star Trek. Uh, Star Trek Discovery is uh, rivaling that in this new era of streaming. Usually it's, you know, I don't know, six to ten episodes. But, um, yeah, what, what are your anticipation levels like with regards to Andor? I, <laughs> so, like, the concept of Andor is something I'm interested in because, uh, like a lot of people, I really enjoyed Rogue One. And over time, it has been interesting. I have observed that the amount of sort of fandom around Rogue One has really built up, whereas fandom around, you know, specific movies of the new sequel trilogy has really began to quiet down. And a lot of people are holding up Rogue One now as the best of that new Star Wars movie era. And Han, Han Solo. That, that was, uh, that was Solo. an amazing movie. <laughs> and Solo, of course, of course. The I think reappraisals are <laughs> a little ways off for that one yet. But well, when honestly, you and I... Like... <laughs> I I rewatched Solo um yeah. maybe maybe a year ago. I actually liked that movie much more than I did when I saw it in theaters. So maybe those reprisals aren't so far away. But I'm sorry, sir. I, please go ahead. Well, yeah, I, you know, I should note you and I were in California fairly recently, and we're just walking, you know, along the Walk of Fame on in Hollywood, and we passed. People the are Alpa- asking for our photos. <laughs> we were putting our hands in, uh, you know, the cement at Man's Chinese Theater. <laughs> yeah. Um, Yep, it we was did dry the... cement, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> we did see the Star Trek crew, the original uh, yeah, cast. Though we saw yeah, their hands, that, was, that was cool. But we passed the uh, Disney-owned El Capitan Theater, which mm-hmm. was doing showings of Rogue One in advance of Andor. So it really does feel like just the iconography of Rogue One is something that people have attached themselves to. Where there was a lot of confusion when that movie came out. I talked to more than one person who went into that movie assuming it was a sequel to The Force Awakens and was very confused. They thought that it it starred Ray, you know, <laughs> it's yes. like that she was the main character. So yes. yeah, <laughs> the marketing, I yeah, it, I, is it the marketing's fault or is it just like I can understand I can understand why it's naturally confusing for broad audiences that aren't following this on like you know movie blogs or podcasts the way that you and I are maybe you know day to day. I I think what was confusing then was the idea that you would have another Star Wars movie come out very quickly after that would be a complete standalone and not related to what else is going on. Um, I don't even know if they ever really got used to that, judging from the box office on Solo, but we'll see if they go back to that. But as for Andor, like I am much more interested now in seeing just the exploration of that Andor character and, you know, the uh, the droid voiced by Alan Tudyk, hopefully, you know, in the near future. But, like, doing a spy series set in Star Wars, I think, like, when it can kind of change its genres a little bit, you can have a lot of success. My only concern, my only concern, because having Tony Gilroy attached is a huge boost for me. Because it's like a lot of hired guns could be thrown onto a Star Wars show just to get it done. The fact that he, you know, this man who's, you know, multiple Oscar nominee, you know, has a pretty impressive, you know, back catalog of work. The fact that he wants to tell this story is like, okay, there's something here. Mm-hmm. It's just the it's just the the nervous factor coming off of the book of Boba Fett and Obi-Wan. Well, I think back to season one of Discovery, where, you know, after Brian Fuller leaves the series, it's kind of like, who's left to tell the story that was meant to come out of everything is like Brian Fuller clearly had a vision 
And then it seemed as if the remaining writers were just kind of, I don't know, trying to piecemeal together some sort of coherent story in season one. Um, th there was no auteur-driven sort of narrative going on. And it, it's very clear you can kind of tug at the seams when you go back and rewatch uh, season one of Discovery. Yeah. And that's the sort of thing that we'll be avoiding here. And I also wonder, like, with Tony Gilroy working on Rogue One, like, how much, you know, just basically coming in to fix that movie was he inspired by the material he was working with and really had a cohesive concept that he was interested in exploring jumping off of you know working with those actors and that material that's what i'm excited about because i i think that's something that star wars is coming into a real risk of um is kind of this like phoned in check the beats of nostalgia there's your latest star wars story where you know star wars was built on you know, George Lucas was very much the auteur of those first three. He didn't direct them all, but he definitely uh, cast a very strong, you know, presence over the first three and then also directed the prequel trilogy. The idea of kind of anonymously directed Star Wars films has not really worked out so well, as well as the TV show. So getting Tony Gilroy back is where I would actually like to see the franchise go larger picture as more auteur directors. It might be a, a very dumb question. Uh, maybe there's an obvious answer, but why hasn't John Favreau been tapped at this point for a feature film? Is it just that um, he's having too much fun doing shows like The Mandalorian, or is it just that? So, like, the thing about Favreau was he did turn down a Force Awakens, um, and I think it was like that nervousness of basically picking up the baton from the original you know, six films. So I think what appealed to him was doing the TV show because it was kind of like new ground that you could come in and just do whatever you wanted and tell your own story. And I'm wondering if like, he's just having way more fun there versus the pressure of being like, here's $200 million. We need a Star Wars movie that's going to make like $1.5 billion. I think honestly, like this is a franchise that, uh, look, wrap up, you know, the show uh, after a few seasons, I think I could support, you know, kind of a, a leap to the big screen. You know, like I, I think um, they've, uh, you know, created a, a menagerie of characters that uh, people find interesting. And no, Cam, you're not going to get your beloved Gina Carano to come back for the feature <laughs> film. I'm sorry, but oh, boo. Uh, <laughs> we're joking, people. <laughs> yeah, we are joking. It's notable, though, you know, <laughs> we live in Canada, and they booked her at the uh, Toronto <laughs> Fan Expo. Um, not so long ago, she could not make it because she couldn't clear the border. Uh, you know why. <laughs> you, you, you can guess why. Um, yeah, yeah. But um, I don't know. Yeah, do you think that you could have a, a Mando feature film that would draw... Um, mainstream audiences and make this a, a, a legit blockbuster in, I don't know, the year 2024, 2025? Hmm. I would say in terms of the character, yes. You have to, I think, there's the hurdles you have to get over because, like, you know, just box office in general is in a weird place. Um, Not that these two things are really that comparable, but you look at a movie like Lightyear performing very poorly at the box office because... Disney had been putting all of the Pixar movies as of late to streaming. At least that's a part of the issue. So people have an expectation. You know what? I can just watch it on the streaming service. Mando, they've been getting on their streaming service for, you know, the third season's coming up. Can you create a film that they feel they have to go see in theaters? I, I would say it's entirely, 
it is something you could do because I think people care about that character and that world. It just needs to, I think, look and feel like a bigger event than just here's the show on the big screen. I kind of wouldn't mind if it was just, you know, kind of the episode where uh, he was uh, hanging out with Timothy Oliphant at uh, that cantina. (laughs) And uh, Mm -hmm. it was just like townspeople, you know, like um, they would never make that movie. But um, I don't know. I'd say that the series looks, uh, you know, quite uh, cinematic. And as you say, if you can just um, make it even more grandiose in... Uh, some of the uh, kind of set pieces that you do. I just think back to uh, that first episode that Robert Rodriguez directed in season two, in which you had that really intense battle in which uh, we eventually see the, the Razor Crest is uh, destroyed. You know, like, I, I'm, I, I'm not going to vouch for Rodriguez's, uh, say, follow-up efforts in um, Boba Fett, but um, mm. I don't know, just, I think there is potential within this Mando universe to kind of tap into, um, you know, interest for mainstream audiences and, and really bring them out in the theaters. Just look, if Star Trek's been able to do that over the years, um, I, I would hope that it could um, uh, do the same somehow in Star Wars, you know. But obviously bigger bigger box office numbers than what we would get with, you know, like Star Trek Generations, uh, for example. Of course, yeah. And I think the thing about Mando is that, like, you could tell that they were struggling to move past like the original franchise characters in Star Wars movies. It was something like they kept having to drag in, you know, that's why you're getting a solo um, because they want to keep reminding you of these characters you love. And it's like, they didn't feel they could create necessarily new characters that could really get people really amped. Even like rogue one, they are filling it with all these references to the other films. It's a prequel to A New Hope. Well, yeah, like Tarkin, Leia, and Darth Vader, they all show up in that movie. Exactly. And I think Mando actually is the only thing they've got right at this very moment that could actually open the door to a big screen film that doesn't rely on pre-existing characters, that you could entirely build it around a new Disney-built character, you know, in the character of Mando, who could be your lead. So I, I think the only stumbling block is if uh, the script comes out and it's always it's just nonstop like knowing nods, knowing winks at the audience about like stuff that happened during the course of the series. And like there will be people that like are going to go see it and they're like, wait, what, what is this in reference to? Like they're going to know that there's stuff going over their head. And that's like just make it totally kind of like um, kind of like like bifurcated from like the the mythology built up in the series but having like this great you know lived in universe with you know great characters and you know who yeah they they might have a shared history but that's not what the enjoyment of the film is dependent on yeah and i would like to see them you know overcome that hurdle of that fear of like a movie depending on the past um i think that's something that needs to happen And it's something kind of circling it back to Star Trek that, you know, you talk about market research and like the determination that like the the Chris Pine and crew is the best, you know, course of action for a movie. It's like, I think they would also be terrified at Paramount to create a Star Trek film that didn't rely on characters that everyone knows. And I would like to see that happen at some point as well, because I just, you know, if Chris Pine and crew get too expensive or... They just all walk like, are we just waiting, you know, another handful of years until Paramount 
reboots the original series cast for a movie or the TNG cast for a movie? Like, could we not create original characters that could carry a movie series and you keep them specifically as movie characters versus, you know, TV characters? Well, you know, how about it's a a spinoff of uh, uh, that time spent in Los Angeles in season two of Picard, you know, just uh, that's the entire setting throughout the court. It's the Rene Picard. I, I know we're going back to a uh, uh, character that was already created, but why don't we have like kind of the Ray, Rene Picard spinoff camp all for the big screen. Or a young Guinan Chronicles. There we go. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. It could be like every episode is just her bar in LA and like who comes in. Uh, Wesley Crusher and Corey Soong. <laughs> Pour one out for that group. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, Cam, um, I, I think next week we can, of course, look forward to uh, episode five of Star Trek Lower Decks. We'll do a review of that. We'll follow up with a review of uh, episode one of Andor. And, uh, yeah, any Star Trek news that uh, comes out in the meantime, we will be uh, dissecting that, too. I had one question. Is Andor the, pre- the premiere? Is it just the single episode? They're not doing double episodes like some of the other Disney shows? I could be wrong, but you know, I'm double checking. Three episodes. Um, Whoa! <laughs> all, all on one day. Yeah. Okay. Three episodes. Uh, so, Cam, uh, block out your calendar. <laughs> Strap yourself in, folks. It's going to be a wild ride yeah. next week. Yeah. Uh, okay. Oh, I actually, I have a concert to go to that night, so um, <laughs> I'll, I'll have to find some time somehow to. This, uh, this will be, we'll, we'll figure something out. You know, maybe can't, maybe we record a, a day later than we usually do. Maybe we record on Friday rather than um, Thursday, if that works. Yeah, I think we might have to do that okay. for those three episodes because those are like probably like forty-minute episodes or something like that. That's uh, yeah, it's not like uh, three episodes of She-Hulk. <laughs> It'd be great if you just saw me at the uh, the concert, uh, just staring at my uh, iPhone, like watching uh, watching uh, Andor that way, you know, while the band is playing. Or you're like crowd surfing, just watching <laughs> the video, <laughs> and I'm screaming out spoilers. <laughs> That's punk rock, baby. That's right. Okay, you can, of course, find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam. V is in very crowded crew quarters, Smith. And you can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P. P as in petty for your hand toes. O-R-T-O-N. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. Transfer complete.